This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Caitlin Yarnall. She's Deputy Director for the Centers of Excellence in Journalism, Mapping, and Photography at the National Geographic Society. She also has been the lead editorial manager for National Geographic's 2014 multi-year multimedia food initiative. It has been the most commercially successful editorial initiative in the history of National Geographic. Her designs also have won numerous awards. We discuss how people value maps, the interrelationships between stories, photos, and graphics at National Geographic, and her work as the head of Geographic's Food Initiative. Before we get into what you're doing now, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by your background. Uh, undergrad in Spanish literature and master's in geography, and now you're into design and interactive for one of the biggest publications in the world. Yep. That that <laughs> if you if you draw lines that doesn't all go together. I've never followed a straight path. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about that. Sure. So um, I actually had a double major in um, undergrad in geography and Spanish literature, but I found geography it was fun. So I loved literature. I loved Spanish. I loved Latin America. So I was a Spanish lit major, like that. Um, in a GE course found geography, and to me it became this thing that explained the world. And then I loved cartography because it was a way to take my math science brain and blend it with my art brain. And so- The two hemispheres put the together. The two hemispheres, the left and right, right? So it was, um, you know, there's a lot of math involved in cartography, which people don't know in terms of, you know, thinking through projections and spatial statistics and, putting information that is collected on a round world onto a flat plane, but then to get people to care and look at and appreciate a map, it had to be beautiful, and you had to work through design thinking to present it. So that's what I studied. Um, Now, design, did that just come naturally to you, or or has it been sort of... uh, uh, the toil part of what you do? But, <laughs> the toil. I mean, I don't think I was ever a supernatural designer. I think a lot was, I learned some in school. I had great professors. Um, a lot of just immersing myself in good design, looking at good stuff. Why Why was it pleasing to me? And then, you know, I, I started at National Geographic and learned from the best. I tell people, you know, you want the very best grad program in the world, go work at National Geographic for a couple of years. I, you know, worked for the creative director, uh, Bill Maher, who is one of the best 
designers in the world, I still say, and learned. We've so, talked to him. Yeah, learned so much, you know, at his feet and the whole staff there. And so a lot of it just was apprenticed. Um, and then when I went to grad school, I thought that I was probably going to be leaving publishing and going more into an academic realm. So I, um, you know, did research with migrants and remittances in Latin America, nothing to do with publishing, but of course took all that data and visualized it, ended up back in publishing, but I don't regret it at all. It's this, um, you know, I got to learn about a subject, I got to do field research, and also it it was a way to, to tell a story in, you know, an academic sense. So this is going to be a convoluted question, but yeah. bear, bear with me. Uh, when my wife and I travel, mm-hmm. we love to take an atlas along with us. And even though we know where we're going or we have GPS to get us there or whatever, my wife especially takes out the atlas and wants to look and see where we are in special relationship to other things. My daughter, 34 years old, goes, you guys are nuts. Why, you, don't, you don't need an atlas. An atlas, what, what are you looking at a map for? They, they're, they're useless. Being a geography person and being a map person, I assume you've had a love affair with maps. What is it that draws people to them or draws you to them? I think there's a resurgence, actually of people who are loving those paper maps. And and part of it, I think, is this, call it hipster steampunk, whatever trend (laughs) you're tapping into of vintage and old being cool. But I think the reason that I think a paper map, what a paper map gives you that that your iPhone doesn't, is it gives you context, right? You're zoomed out and you do the zooming in and out. You have the context around you. I don't know, for me, I think it is this physical representation and a very visual object, you could say, of something abstract that is in all of us. So we, we're, we walk around in this space. We know that we're spatial beings and everything that we see and touch and feel is related to something else spatially. But it's so rare that you actually see that represented visually and you have your place within it. So I think, you know, as species, we're, we're selfish. It's all about us. And us can be, you know, me, Caitlin, as an individual, but it could be the two of us or it could be my family. And I think from that, we want to put ourselves in the center of our world. And a map lets you do that. You can always look at a map and say, here's where I am. And here's where my dad is. And here's where my mom is. And here's where I had my first date. And here's where I want to go on vacation. And for me, I think there's something very personal about that, of this abstract sense we have that we're spatial beings of knowing that we are operating within you know space and time but we can abstract it and put it on a piece of paper or represent it through pixels and individualize it so the where you are at at national geographic you have to create in combination with text, with the story, do you start with the graphics first and then go to the story? Or do you start with the story and then say, okay, what graphics do we put with it or both? Uh, 
both, all of the above. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, the magazine is such a great place, and then I spent over a decade there, and the thing that I learned is that every good story and every good initiative came from a team. It was never one person. And the story genesis may have originated with a photographer or a writer or an editor. But the good stories that really kind of performed on all levels were, I used to describe it as kind of a tripod of you had text, photography, and then graphics and maps. And the three, those three components were all the key elements of what a classic National Geographic story had and what made them great. So you wanted the photography. Whether it was the old-fashioned print. Or the or, digital. Or digital. Totally. The, the, the element's the same. The element's the same. I mean, I think we get so caught up in the medium. Were we putting this out? And yes, if we're talking about technical specs, of course you need to think about that. But storytelling and narrative, the medium is, it almost doesn't matter. Words, it, pictures, and maps. Yeah, maps and graphics. And I think, so So sometimes, the you know, normally in a geographic story, the photos got most of the, the ink and then the words and then the maps and graphics. But it was always this team of usually a photo editor, a text editor, and a graphics or maps editor working together to say, okay, how do we tell this story together so we're all driving to the same point? And what's your part of it and what's my part of it? So... Today, we hear the term interactive a Mm -hmm. lot, and I'm not sure I know what that means because every journalist I've talked to (laughs) has sort of a different definition of of what that means. Every publication has a little different definition. I think overall, it means that somehow you get the reader uh, engaged in a journey on their own that's ancillary or corollary to the story. Yep, I, I would agree with that. So how much thought goes into that? What kind of hooks do you maybe use to get a person to say, yeah, I want to do that? I think you totally have to think about who's your audience, what's the story you're trying to tell. In that sense, I think medium is important. Is this something that someone's going to see on their desktop and lean back? Is this something that someone's carrying around and may have in their in their pocket on their phone and they may have two minutes? Um, I think what we're learning is that people like to hit, people are lazy, <laughs> like to hit <laughs> and like to hit play, or like to uh, scroll. And these really, you can see, I don't know, five, six years ago, these really rich data-heavy interactives where you clicked here and then you slid this lever, of, lever over and you did that. The, the analytics have shown us that a lot of people don't follow all the way through or the percentage of your, your readers who will push every button and turn every knob and lever is pretty small. Oftentimes, um, you know, a, an animated vector graphic or a video that you can hit play on is more effective in terms of getting people through your story. I think the most, some of the most effective pieces that I've been involved in, I think are the ones where at the top of the page, we set context. We give the reader some level of interactivity that's very easy. You know, an overview where you click through three or four steps or you hit play, but then you could scroll down or and engage farther 
and go do more with people who really are your pro users, right? Mm-hmm. So someone who wanted to say, you know what, I love this so much, now I want to go explore the data by myself. But it was a conscious decision to know that most of our readers will drop off towards the top, and then it becomes this time and money investment question of, do you want to build that So it up? seems to me that you have different satisfaction levels, and maybe mm-hmm. that's not the right word, but but for the average reader, they'll go here. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who's a little interested will go here. And then <laughs> and the pro super ones who— Will dig down to here. Yeah. Uh, and and those are conscious decisions in your design? I think they're conscious decisions they have been for me. And then I think the hard part, and the hard part as a manager becomes, at what point do you know that there are your super users who would go all the way down, but it's not worth the time, money, and effort to create that experience for just them? And one of the things that I hold close in my head when you work, when I work on this kind of stuff is we're not designing for our peers. And by that, I mean other designers or other data journalists or other photojournalists to pick your medium, but we are designing for our readers and the public. Uh, because it's very easy to design for something that you know in the competitions or that your friends or your peers, is go- everyone's going to say, wow, did you, see, did you see what he did? But that's not why we're paid to go to work every day. We've sort of had a love affair, and I don't know whether it's waning, but we've sort of had a love affair in journalism with big data. Mm -hmm. And and part of me, the cynical part of me, says, okay, that's that's an excuse for not doing a good narrative. (laughs) You just put all the data there and let people mine it. For for themselves, and I'm sure that my view is that held by by many. But what I'm hearing you say is data is important only one if it's cost effective for the publication, mm-hmm. but two if it's actually meaningful for a significant number of people. Well, I mean, I think why build something? Why put something out if no one's going to see it? I think, and and there are things you build even though because the impact is going to be so great that you need to do it, or you're making it, for instance, you're making a report for a policy group. It doesn't matter if five people see it. If they are the decision makers, then it's worth everything. But I think, you know, for a broad mass publication, you have to think about what's our purpose and audience in this. I do think in terms of data journalism, big data's always been around, right? Always. We've always had tons of data. It's just we didn't have... It wasn't as democratized. We couldn't pull it down and throw it up for everyone to see. But for me, it's not, you know, what's, how much data do you have? How many data points? I don't really care. It's how many stories and how many meaningful stories can you pull out of the data and what are you trying to do with it? We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab 
will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I think everyone knows how to interact with a video. It's pretty simple from a user perspective. You push play, you watch what happens, which is nice. Um, I think often, too, you... From an editorial control perspective, you control the narrative. You know that people are going to absorb and pick up all the points that you want them to see in a story. If you throw out a big interactive or you throw out a lot of numbers and you hope people find the thread through, they may not. I talked to a um, cartoonist, a political cartoonist, and a reporter not long ago who did an in-depth story in chapters about immigration and people who were afraid to be identified and they couldn't be photographed. And so they did this nonfiction journalistic piece like a graphic Mm -hmm. novel in six chapters with the cartoon illustrations with it. I thought that was a fascinating way of of telling a story, a new and fresh way. I'm sure you're always looking for fresh ways. I was looking for fresh ways, and I think, you know, particularly learning a lot of this at National Geographic, where photography is our principal medium, oftentimes graphics and illustrations step in for things that you can't photograph. And so there's a lot of reasons why you can't photograph something. That's a perfect example of it's not safe to photograph someone right. and give away their identities, but oftentimes things are too small, the very small things, or they're too big. Um, so examples of too small would be molecular processes. Or too big is, you know, we, we do a lot of space stories. You can't photograph that. It's too big. Um, or too far away or too dark or... Um, cross-sections, cutaways, things that you can't photograph become very, very suited for illustration, for graphics. Um, We did a lot of work. I have a graphic in my head on um, fracking. And to really understand fracking, it was accompanied by a beautiful photo essay that showed the effects and showed the people who were involved in the industry. But it was this one graphic, well, actually a graphic and a map, so the graphic that was a big cross-section that the scale was so big you couldn't have photographed it and also you couldn't slice the earth in half to look at how deep this goes and how it crossed the water table and then there was a map that went with it that pulled out and it was so big that you couldn't have photographed at that scale but also it showed where all the wellheads went and so that right there to me felt like we were completing the story for a reader because we were using this to show things we couldn't photograph. You have to know as much about that story, though, as the graphic designer, as as the reporter. It's perhaps sometimes more. Or different kind of information. And, and you have to, I assume, go, okay, if I'm a news consumer, if I'm a consumer of National Geographic out there, what do I need? What's, what's What's missing? Now, do you have people that you talk to? Do, do you do this all internally? How, how do you come up with that kind of approach? 
Yeah, so my team, uh, I always said, you know, it's a team of journalists. Um, we, m- many of them did not study journalism. The majority didn't. Um, I didn't. But you have to act like a journalist. You have to do reporting. You're working with sources. So sometimes um, it's pulling, you know, spreadsheets of data. Sometimes it's pulling um, ar- architectural drawings. Sometimes it's going into the field. Um, and, and at Geographic, I had the fortune of traveling with stories to report on them for graphics and maps. And, uh, you know, I, w- I was telling the story today of being on an uh, archaeological dig and sketching and taking pictures for reference that they were used to make a graphic. Um, but then it's this back and forth. Once you have the primary data, primary sources collected, then, like any piece of journalism, you're verifying. You're verifying with, with your sources that you've got the information for. Did I get this right? Did I find the right story in the numbers? Did I render this tomb right? And then you're checking with other sources. So uh, I found this here. Um, this source says this. What do, what do other archaeologists say about this? How does it fit with so-and-so's theory? So um, a lot of it was done in-house. And sometimes we sent out to freelancers, but even when we sent out to freelancers, we often um, would assign graphics or maps researchers who are reporters. And so, uh, you know, people don't often think of the people in a newsroom or in a publication who are sitting with uh, the Adobe Creative Suite open <laughs> as journalists. But in sometimes they are they are as much the journalist if they're doing it right as anyone out with a reporter's notebook. So are you about to take the step into virtual and augmented reality? And how do you do a map a good that question. people feel? It's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of research being done in this area. You know, National Geographic is doing VR work uh, primarily with photography. And right. we have a— um, Everybody's starting with 360 totally kind of, because, kind of things. Because, one, the technology is there. And two, I think our brains understand it because we are used to um, being in a 3D space and it looking like a photograph because that's, well, that's real life. But I think, yeah. I think and we have some great um, engineers and, that are working on more uh, nimble camera systems that can do that. And so you could, uh, I think a future is coming where many photographers just flip a switch on the DSLR there they're using the taps into another channel and they're doing photogrammetry, right? I think in the maps and graphics space where we need to learn and where we actually are behind and from an editorial perspective are video games. Right. So, so if you think about, and I, 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 I have to be careful what I say here because I'm not a great gamer, but if you think about some of these games where you are uh, shooting zombies or bad guys running around in a building or a warehouse or a space... Instead of running around shooting zombies, what if you were uh, walking through a tomb looking at archaeological digs? I mean, and that in and of itself is a map. It's just a matter of scale. You're in a, a space moving through and seeing things and experiencing things. So there's no reason why you couldn't make it a tomb or the, or, or the recreation of an event. I think as I look at young people, and I'm talking about two- and three-year-olds with yeah. tablets and, and younger, um, that 
they're learning in an entirely different way than you learned and certainly an entirely different way than I learned. But that experiential learning with them is going to be a necessity in media. It's no longer going to be uh, just to read it or or to manipulate data. Mm-mm. If it's not an experience, it's not going to make it. I know it, it's 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 fascinating because I think on one hand you're absolutely right, and I we've I think many of us have seen those YouTube videos where you see a a kid and they make you sad walk up to a, a TV and try to pinch and zoom or you know try to pinch and zoom on a book. Um, so I think that. The, that it's just going to move there as the generation moves. But I also think there is a counter movement to some extent, and I mentioned it in maps before, in terms of back to basics, back to simplicity. Our brains are so overloaded. We've There's cognitive study after cognitive study saying that multitasking doesn't work, right. that we're losing our ability to focus. Um, there's I've been reading a lot about our our mental maps getting weak. If you're never lost as a kid, if you're never lost as a young adult, how do you develop develop a, a sense of direction? How do you develop those mental maps if you're always running around looking at a GPS? And I think I'm very interested to see because I think this counter movement may grow in terms of people saying, you know what, no, I'm going to use the paper map. I'm going to... Uh, either listen to a podcast or an audiobook. I think podcasts are a great show of that. They're super popular. Um, people want one input at a time. One input that is the most mobile medium yes. that we have. But you don't have to look at anything. You don't have to hold anything. You, <laughs> you, you can drive. You can cook. You can close your eyes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So all of this, now you're dealing with food, so it, I, it, it's, it's so <laughs> connect the dots for me. So um, yeah, so I was very fortunate to you know be an executive editor in the magazine and and had maps graphics uh, design in my portfolio. And then our editor at the time in 2014, uh, Chris Johns, asked me if I'd love if I would want to be the editorial lead for our big major initiative around food. And I said, of course. <laughs> One, because you don't say no to Chris. Well, you tip, don't say no to your boss. But right. also, I don't say no to Chris Johns because usually when he, had, when he has an idea, it's a good one. And it was a way for me to step out of even that visual bucket and think much broader in terms of uh, pulling together a big initiative. So it was not only the editorial uh, story arc that we did through the magazine, through television, um, through our museum exhibits, but also thinking through who are our partners, what should, what should that look like, um, how do we internationalize, how did we, I worked uh, with our Explorers program on which food scientists or activist, activists should we uh, elevate and fund. And for me, it was uh, you know something that I could take a topic that I was an educated reader about, right, could dive into it, really become uh, sit with experts and become a mini expert myself and then pull on all the levers of National Geographic's brand to create a multi-year initiative. It was, it's, it's been fun. And it's not food as in 
the latest restaurant or the latest dish. It's food broadly yep. uh, from its creation to its design to its uh, – the deprivation thereof. It, it's, it's food globally. It's food with a big F. I mean, and, and one of the reasons I, I love the topic and one of the reasons why I think it does so well for a big brand like National Geographic is we did everything from kids' cookbooks to our travel magazine did do Best Restaurants of New Orleans to uh, the magazine, the big National Geographic Yellow Border magazine did um, a lot of stories on uh, GMOs and hunger in America and uh, paleo, the true paleo diets. What did a, what did we eat in the Neolithic period? Um, so it, it could be really heavy in a lot of an agriculture, but then, you know, all the way through. It, it, food is such a great topic because you can talk about uh, security and conflict and you can talk about water and you can talk about climate change and you can talk about all population, all the big pressing issues, but it's also culture and it's history and it is uh, immigration and it's it's learning and it's language and design. So food food can be all those things. You started by merging the right hemisphere with the left. It sounds like that happens totally on your your food beat, so to speak. On the food beat, and you know, I think there are many days I feel like I don't get to do anything creative because I'm running from meeting to meeting and I'm emailing and doing budgets. And at the end of the day, cooking can feel like that. You know, it, it's this very tangible, uh, analytical, take ingredients, do some form of chemistry and physics and feed yourself and clean up and be done. But it can also be art and beauty and design and comfort and an expression of love. And so I think food for me on a personal level is the left and right brain, but as a topic, it's that way too. It sounds like to me that you're still excited about what you're doing. And and that's refreshing. I, <laughs> <laughs> I talk to so many journalists who are trudging or or feel overwhelmed, and and that sort of cuts against their excitement. You seem to be truly excited. You know, I think I'm generally a glass half full person. It's how I get through most days. Um, we can all get dark and twisty about things, but I think that we have so many more tools as journalists so many more platforms to get information out to uh, people around the world. And, you know, I look at for National Geographic Instagram and and the fact that we are reaching teenagers and they're reading captions about climate change. That's amazing. We didn't have a way to do that in the past. And so I'm excited about the tools. I'm excited about the reach. I'm excited about, um, you know, the teams we get to build. It's, it's, a, it's a fun time. Caitlin, thank you. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Caitlin Yarnall of National Geographic about how textual storytelling is not enough anymore. She claims that graphic storytelling with maps, photos, and other interactive devices is a necessity. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcasts or review it through Apple Podcasts. 
If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.